I am really excited for this. Um, I'm excited that we're in here and the men of new life are down the hall and that we are all going to be digging into the Word of God this year. Um, There's nothing better we could spend our time doing than being in the Word of God. Um, And I'm just thrilled to be here with you all. So... As I go through a little intro here, I do want to say there's going to be a paper going around that has everybody's names and info on it that have registered. So if you just want to double check your information, make sure it's correct. And if you're not on there, add yourself to the end. Um, Elizabeth, this is Elizabeth. Um, She'll just every week send you a little follow-up email um, so you can look for that. If, and this is so okay, you all, if you don't want a weekly email when this goes around, you can even just put no email, no offense taken, just, but if you want one, make sure you're signed up. Okay. Um, We are going to start, we have a 10-week session here, and we'll be going line by line through the books of Ruth and Esther. So why Ruth and Esther? Well, number one, I thought it would be really great for us as a group of women to really study the two women that have books of the Bible named after them. And if you don't know why now, by the end of this, you, it will be very easy to see why these women are worthy of having books named after them. Two amazing women. Um, and I loved what Kevin said on Sunday, Pastor Kevin. He talked about Um, viewing people in the Bible and not comparing yourself. And as we look at these women who are amazing women, we are not doing this to compare ourselves to them. Y'all, comparison is a trap. It either makes you feel superior to someone else or inferior, but that's all it does. So we do not compare, but we do look at these people both in history and our contemporaries as people to model ourselves after, as people to emulate when we see certain things. Because when I study these women, my prayer is, Lord, let me handle myself in the way these women did. Um, Amazing, amazing things that they did. Um, The second reason I wanted to start with these two books is simply because they're Old Testament books. And you all, if you don't know, I want you to know the Old Testament is relevant to us today. There is a false teaching in the church right now, um, not in our local church, thank God, not in New Life. We do not adhere to this, but in the church in general that we can and even should, the word is, unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament and Ladies, that is a lie. That is a lie. Uh, We need the full counsel of God. That means from Genesis 1 to Revelation 24. 24 or 22. Well, whichever. 22. Thank you. (laughs) Um, (laughs) We need the full counsel of God. Um, This idea that the Old Testament portrays God. as wrathful and violent, and he is not attractive to someone. 
So we leave it behind because we're new covenant believers. That, that is not, again, that is a lie. That is a lie. Um, it is not our job to make this attractive to anybody. <laughs> it's not. Our job is to study it, to live by it, and to pass it on. Okay? God can take care of himself. Okay? Um, I believe we are going to find it is very relevant. It is very today for all of us. So for those two reasons, that's why we're starting with these two books. Um, Again, it's a 10-week session. We're going to try to hit a chapter a night in Ruth. When we get to Esther, we'll do two chapters, hopefully a night, to get through. Um, I want you to know some of you in this room know me very well, and it has been an honor and privilege to study the Bible with many of you all. Um, Some of you don't know me at all, so I want you to know I take this very seriously. Um, I know what James 3.1 says. It says teachers are held to a higher standard. Um, The King James (laughs) puts it as teachers open themselves up to a greater condemnation. Um, So I, I approach this very seriously, you all. I, I believe there is nothing more valuable we could hold in our hands than the Word of God. Nothing. And it is a privilege and an honor to get to study it out together. Um, so, that falls on me as the teacher. For everyone else, I would just throw out Second Timothy 2.15 which says, study to show yourself approved, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That is the call to all of us. Um, Teaching doesn't mean one person studies and everybody else just gets. Studying is for everyone. We are all to study the word of God, all of us. Um, Acts 17, 11 When Paul was talking to the believers in Berea, he said, you all, I esteem you more than those in Thessalonica because every night, he said, they took what he said and examined it to the word of God to see if it be true. So that is what I would ask you to do as well. Um, Whatever I say in here, take it home, evaluate it, look at it. Read it for yourself. Study it for yourself. That's what we should all be doing anyway. And if I make a mistake, I want to know because I want to fix it. (laughs) But um, examine everything by the word of God for yourself. So, yes. I think we have run out of notebooks. Oh, okay. So when, yeah, we have one more here. As the paper goes by that you're signing, if you don't have a notebook, put an asterisk by it or put notebook. I will email you the innards and I will make you, I will bring a binder for you next week. Okay? Okay. And maybe tonight you can share. Oh, okay. Thank you. And in your binders, As you can see, there's not a lot in it yet. 
You'll be getting copies every week as we go. And one of the main, one of the main reasons for that, you all, is I'd really like for each week, just submerge yourself in that chapter for the week. There'll be little things embedded for you to think about during the week, or if you want to read further, I'll have a little of that in your notes. But if nothing else, just keep reading through the book of Ruth um, this whole four weeks, you all. We can never exhaust the word of God. We could stay in Ruth forever, and there would always be something for us, okay? So that's why the copies are made like this, and every week you'll get a new set that you can add to your binders. We tried to make the copies with very generous margins and lots of space so that you have time for writing. Um, Billy Graham always said the difference between reading and studying is a pen and paper. So as you hear something, jot it down, write in your Bibles, do whatever is going to spur your memory later when you're reading on your own. So the book of Ruth, um, it is the eighth book of the Bible. The author is unknown, though most people credit Samuel with its writing. Since David is mentioned in it, but not Solomon, um, it's believed to have been written at some point during David's reign, which would have been between 1011 and 971 BC. And I would say... I cannot imagine how David would have felt the first time he heard this story. Because this story sets up his lineage. This story sets up his authority to be the king. So thinking of him hearing this just blows, blows my mind how that would have been for him. Um, as we said, this is one of only two of the books in the Bible named after women. It spans a time frame of about 11 to 12 years. Um, Ruth's name is mentioned 12 times in the Bible. Obviously, most of them are in the book of Ruth, but she's never again mentioned in the Old Testament. And then we hear of her one more time in the New Testament in the lineage of Jesus. Um, this is a story, you all, where the plot line is sometimes called the plot of progressive value. And you see this in so many movies and books. You all, it's the story of a nobody becoming a somebody. Okay? This girl was a, a, a no one from a country with very questionable beginnings. And you all... She changed history. She absolutely changed history. Um, this is an acclaimed piece of writing in and of itself. I did not know this until I studied it out the first time. But this book is alluded to, quoted, referenced in many other works of literature. Um, people like John Keats, John Updike, Jane Austen, one of my personal favorites, um, Victor Hugo, and Johann Goethe, who was the writer of Faust, he said, he said these words, what Venus is to statuary and the Mona Lisa is to painting, Ruth is to literature. So as we get into this, we're going we're to see some neat little things in here that I think pro prove his quote. Um, Ruth is a book of multiple themes. We have God's providence, you are a thousand 
years before this story of Ruth, Abraham had been called by God to found a nation through which the Savior of mankind would come. Okay? Um, Ruth describes the founding of the family within the nation. The family within the nation. Um, We're going to see again that this establishes David's line and his right to the throne. We will see that in this story, we get some typology, which we'll be talking about. And Boaz is a type of Christ. We'll be kind of picking that out through the story. Um, We see, as we sort of mentioned, the story of a seemingly unimportant person during an insignificant almost period of time that we'll be talking about, um, who later proves to be just a monumental moment in history. And then, of course, the ultimate theme is the theme of redemption. We will first see Ruth's redemption and how it is a picture of our own. Um, In this book, as in any book of the Bible, you all, there are also multiple levels of application. The first one is historical. Um, We need to keep in mind these were real people. These people really existed at exact points in history, in exact places. Um, Not everyone who reads the Bible, not everyone who even teaches the Bible holds to that anymore. To some people, these have become myths, legends. This is real, real. And also in that, because we are the beneficiaries of having the whole story, we already know their ends. So sometimes we forget what these people were going through in the middle of these stories. We, We want to remember that. Um, The second level of application is personal. Um, You all, this story has something to say to you, and it has something to say to me. Um, But remember, this is application. It is not meaning. Okay? We don't get to decide what this means. Okay? We only get to decide what we do with it. Okay, I get almost the hair on my arm stands up when I hear people say, what does that scripture mean to you? Well, you all, God had a meaning behind that scripture. We are to find out what he meant, not what we mean. Okay, but with that, we apply it in our lives. First off, we choose whether we do or not. Okay, and secondly, how we apply it. Um. Thirdly, the level of application is prophetic, okay? There is one thing when you hear this word prophecy to keep in mind is um, we tend to think of prophecy um, through a Greek lens because we are so, our our country is so associated with Greece um, and their philosophy and their way of thinking and they see prophecy as something is said and it's fulfilled. Okay, a prof- prophecy of fulfillment. Okay, the ancient Hebrews saw prophecy as patterns. Okay, and we're going to see Ruth lays out a pattern that is going to be played out later. Okay, 
and we are we are a part of this. The word for that is remez, and it just means a hint of something deeper. This is a beautiful story in and of itself, but you all, it is a hint of something much greater than just the story of these people. So, in your notebook, I have the first chapter. Every week, we're going to start by just reading the chapter that we're going to go through. The version I gave you is the ESV. You can follow along on that, or you can follow along in your own version if you would like. But this is Ruth, chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephratites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The names of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years. And both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-laws, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you might find rest each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return to you and to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband." If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then she lifted up, then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. Where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. 
So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? When the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem in the beginning of the barley harvest. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you tonight in Jesus' name. Lord, we are so thankful for your word. God, thank you that we have the opportunity to meet without fear, to open your word, to study it together. God, we pray that your word do what it does best, mold us and make us into your likeness. Lord, we desire to be women who follow hard after you. Lord, I pray Psalm 119.18 over all of us tonight that you might open our eyes, that we might see wonderful things in your word. We thank you and praise you for this. In the precious name of Jesus, amen. Okay, so verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. So right off the bat, this first verse gives us four very important pieces of the story. We get the time frame, the problem, the place, and the people involved. So we're going to hit each of these individually. First of all, we'll look at the time. So in the days when the judges ruled, what, what does this mean? Let, let's take a minute here. We're going to look at the historical context to see where exactly does this story fit in the Bible. Because you all, I hold to the belief that every word in here, every name, every number, every detail is here for a reason. And I believe it is ordered in such a way for to build that meaning as well. Okay. So I have on your page here, this is kind of a snapshot of the whole Bible. Okay. So as you look at that, um, we're going to do just a quick little survey here. You can, as you know, the Bible, we have one book made of 66 books written by over 40 different people over a time span of a thousand years. Okay. Y'all, this, this is amazing because nothing in this book contradicts anything else. There is no mistake, okay, in the original language, okay, original language, Hebrew and Greek, okay, no mistakes in the original language. There are transi- translational errors, you all, and we can talk about those things. Some are in the Old Testament, but I mean, in the King James, but none 
in the original language. This is why I'm a firm believer. We go back, we look into these languages, we get a little Hebrew, we look at a little Greek, okay? It helps us to rightly divide the Word of God, okay? So, in these books, we see the first five books here are called the book of, books of the law, um, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They were all written by Moses, okay? And these are the setups for what we're going to call the historical books, which is the history of Israel, okay? But, of course, we need these first five books to even see where did Israel even come from, okay? So, obviously, in Genesis, that word means beginning. And in Genesis, we have the beginning of everything, everything, all of creation, the beginning of humanity, we see the purpose that is set for humanity. We see the fall of humanity. We get our first glimpse of Satan. We have the seed plot that is laid out in Genesis that continues all the way to Revelation. Um, we meet Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, okay? Um, um, amazing history within this book itself. Um, Genesis ends with the death of Joseph. Okay? Towards the end, we had Abraham, or I'm sorry, we had Jacob's family going to Egypt, again because of a famine, okay? Going into Egypt and being there with Joseph. Joseph has been set before them. So Genesis ends with the death of Joseph. Exodus begins. It talks about Joseph dying. Um, a generation passes. And then a new pharaoh or a new king comes into power that does not care about Joseph, doesn't know Joseph, doesn't know his God. So all the people are enslaved. And this is the story of their enslavement and their deliverance with Moses. Um, after that, we get the book of Leviticus, which is called, sort of, that is the book of the law within the five books of the law. This is where the laws are laid out. This is where we get the establishment of the sacrificial system. We get the establishment of the priesthood. Um, you all, th this is a book, believe it or not, it is really a book worth studying. <laughs> and it's not one where I'm like, oh, I can't wait to go to bed and read Leviticus. <laughs> But you all, when you look at this book, when you read it, it'll bring you to your knees saying, thank you, God, for the blood of Jesus. Because before that, this is what unholy people had to do to be in right standing with a holy God. We are, we are at blessed people. We are a blessed people. But this is Leviticus. Um, then we get into Numbers. Numbers chronicles what we call the wilderness wanderings. Obviously, you all not long. They had just escaped. They had just gotten out of Egypt. And they're grumbling and they're complaining. And it leads to sin. And they're what should have taken a couple weeks in this journey to the promised land ends up taking about 40 years. So this is that story in numbers. And then Deuteronomy, 
the last book of Moses. It's right at the end of his life. And this is sort of his five last sermons to the people before he dies. So in Deuteronomy, you really get a lot of summaries of the other four books. You get a lot of other little details added in there. Um, But some of it seems like it's even repeated. Okay. But those are the books of the law. And this leads us to the historical books. There are 12 historical books. Um, Joshua is the first, and here we see the conquest and the dividing of the land among the tribes. Jacob, of course, had 12 sons. These became known as the 12 tribes of Israel. So when Abraham went into Egypt as a family, they came out, you all, as the nation of Israel. And this is what they're referred to ever after that, okay? So As an inheritance, there was this wonderful piece of land called Canaan. And you have a map there in your notes. And that land was to be divided among the 12 tribes. But the problem was there were enemies in the land. Okay? There were giants in the land. There were people worshiping other gods in this land. So they were given the land, but they had to go take it. And we we all know this story, you all, with Joshua. Many, many incredible conquests in this book, okay? This is the story of going to take that land. But at the end of Joshua, he dies. And the people are left wondering, who is going to lead us now? And then this gets us into the book of Judges, okay, which is actually the time frame for our story, okay? So, in the book of Judges, and let me, let me just say this, I believe part of the beauty of the book of Ruth is understanding the mess, the mess everything was in at the time that this happened, The time of the judges was one of the worst times in Israel's history, okay? So Joshua had died. Some of the tribe leaders, they're working together to go go try to conquer their pieces of land, but it it, it goes south very, very quickly. Um, We remember what what God had told the people. And I'm going to read this. You can turn if you want. I'm reading, kind of summarizing a little bit out of um, Judges chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. He said this, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land I swore to give your ancestors. I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall not make a covenant with the people of the land. You are to break down their altars or they will become traps for you and their gods will become snares for you. Okay? So right from the get-go, you all, and we're just going to touch on a few of these tribes. Um, Chapter 1, verse 19, we see the tribe of Judah. He was able to get part of his inheritance He took possession of the hill country, but was unable to drive out the people from the plains. 121, the Benjamites. 
However, the Benjamites did not drive out the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem. To this day, the Jebusites live there with the Benjamites. 127. And if you're not familiar with the book of Judges, read the last chapter and you can see the horrific things the Benjamites end up doing. It's rough to read. Sometimes I joke, if Judges was ever made into a movie, I don't know that I could watch it. Um, 127, Manasseh. He did not, that tribe did not drive out the people. They pressed the Canaanites into forced labor, but they never drove them out completely. So they're living with them. Nor did Ephraim. They continued to live among them. Neither did Zebulun. The Canaanites lived among them, though they subjected them again to forced labor. Nor did Asher. Neither did Naphtali. And in 134, the Amorites confined the Danites, not allowing them to come onto the plain. Um, so if you look on your map there, so all these tribes going into the land, not driving out all the people. Some of them kept the people as slaves, okay? But there was a mixing of the people. This shouldn't have been there. And exactly what God said was going to happen to them happened to them. Their gods became their gods. They became snared by the cultures and belief systems of the people from these lands, okay? Um, and then Dan, and you can see where he's supposed to be here, um, kind of southwest. He, he couldn't even get the land, so he just capitulated the whole thing. And they head up north, and he ends up, you all, northeast of where Naphtali, where you can see that on your, nat, on your map. Mm -hmm. So he ends up way over there. Where it has the city dam? Yes. You all, he ends up in a place he was not even supposed to be. And that tribe is credited as the one to really bring the idolatry into the nation of Israel. Okay? Um, so your first little application question there, and this is something you can just think through through the week, you all. Are we easy or pray when we're not where we're supposed to be? Yes. Yes. Are you ever somewhere you're not supposed to be? Do you ever go places maybe you shouldn't be? Just think about these things. Um, so the tribes are already struggling. They're compromising. They're disobeying. They're settling. Um, do we ever do that? Compromise on what God's told us. Y'all, this is what he's told us. If we're not doing it, we're compromising. You, oh, oh, you all, to me too. I'm not. This is a big deal. This is a big deal. It leads, leads to disobedience, and it leads to destruction. Okay? Um, but even with all this, you all, their greatest mistake was they stopped teaching their children the ways of God. Okay? Judges 2, 7 through 16. And again, I'll summarize this a bit. It says, The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and the elders who outlived him 
and who had all seen the great things that the Lord had done for Israel, after that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. How did they not know? They weren't taught. They weren't taught. Um, David says in Psalm 71, 18, Even when I am old and gray, do not forsake me, my God, till I declare your power to the next generation, your mighty acts to all who are to come. And then Psalms 89, 1 says, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. How long is that? Forever. With my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. It doesn't matter, you all, our age, our situation, our careers, our whatever. This is the job of all of us. This is the job of all of us. We are to pass on to the next generation our God and what he has done, okay? And this, I know there's a lot of jokes right now about millennial generation. You all, that's always been generations seem to tease generations that follow them. Some of it is on the generation before them, (laughs) okay? Um, We need to be teaching the next generation the ways of God. We need to teach the next generation to know him. Um, So just think about that. Um, Who are you teaching? What are you you all passing on? Who are you passing things on to? Um, So here they are in this huge mess, you all. Um, They are taken over constantly by their enemies all throughout this map, dealing with enemies, okay? So it says in verse 16 that the Lord raised up judges. Now, this word is a little different than how we hear it today is this presiding judge. And even though this person could do this, it was really more like a deliverer or a conqueror, okay? It was their leader. So they would get into trouble. God would raise up a judge for them. The judge would help them get out of the mess, whoever they were fighting. And there's a chart that I put there, I believe, yes, that shows the different judges, the tribe they're from, and who their enemy was, okay? But something, again, very interesting happened. They would get out of the mess they were in, and as soon as everything was okay, Not only would they go back to their own ways, it said they went to ways that were worse. Okay? Verse 19 says, um, no, I'll go up, I think 18. The judges saved them out of the hands of the raiders. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge, he was with the judge as long as the judge lived. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than their ancestors. So 
this whole book, you all, chronicles a 350-year time period of the decline of Israel. However they were at the time when God raised Othniel, they were much, much worse when he had to raise Samson. Okay? This was their continual decline, and the entire book is summed up in the very last book or the very last verse. Go to your Bibles and even in your Bible, even just underline this. This is chapter 21, verse 25. I'll give you a second to get there. I want you to see it when you hear this one. Yes, Judges 21, 25. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Oh, yes. Kind of like today. Absolutely. Everybody doing whatever they want to do, whatever is right in their own eyes. Mm. Um, a little connection there for you. Um, you can see in Psalms 106, if you want to read that at some point this week. It's kind of a very condensed, abbreviated history of the things we just covered. Crazy how it's all packed into one little psalm. Okay? One, one of the most amazing things, again, about this book is its connectiveness. It is the thing that got me so excited about studying the Bible. Um, for me, it was definitely when I did a study of Genesis and then Revelation, kind of back to back. And it was so connected, it was crazy. Um, and even as we go through Ruth and Esther over the ne these next few weeks, we're going to be going into a lot of other places. Okay, So some of them I'll have listed for you so you can just take them and explore them on your own. So, so this is the time frame, you all. This is when the story of Ruth happens. Sometime during this time of the judges, sometime during this 350-year time span, we have this little story, okay? I don't know that anybody knows exactly when during these years. I've never seen it. I've never been able to find it. Um, be something fun to look into. But um, somewhere during this book is the book of Ruth. Makes it all the more special that this happened during this time. So the next thing in verse 1, I know we're still in verse 1. The other verses will come much faster, I promise. Okay. So the next thing we get in verse 1 is the problem. So in the days of the judges, there was a famine in the land. Now there are 13 famines listed in the Bible. They are most often a result of God's judgment for rebellion. And again, you all, because we know the time frame of this story, it, it's kind of easy to see this could have very possibly been God was judging Israel, okay? And because of the famine, they had to leave. So the people, it says, a man of Bethlehem and Judah, he and his wife and his two sons, we actually will get a little better introduction to them in the next verse, so we're going to 
slide on through here. Um, and the next piece is the place. It says they went to sojourn in the country of Moab. So first of all, that word so, sojourn in Greek it is guer, and it means to dwell for a time. It implies a temporary situation. So they were not intending to go to Moab for the rest of their lives, okay? They were tending, I, I just lost the word, intending, thank you, <laughs> to go there to wait out the famine, okay? So if you look on your map there, the second little map I put in, you can see Bethlehem in Judah. You can sort of think of Judah is sort of like the state and Bethlehem is the city. Okay, this is how we know that um, this family was from the tribe of Judah. Okay, they were living in Bethlehem. You all, it's the story of Ruth, which is why most people probably around the world know what Bethlehem is. They have heard that word before. Okay, because of what happens in this story. So you can see there's Bethlehem. There's the track they would take to get into the country of Moab. It's about 75 miles. Now, obviously, back then, by foot, this would have been a horrible journey. They go through a desert. There is elevation change of over 4,500 feet on this trip. They go through wilderness. Okay, this, this is no easy trek. But at the same time, it's only 75 miles away. This is like Louisville and Lexington. If we have a famine in Louisville, chances are there's a famine in Lexington. So this is further kind of support for the idea that this famine was a result of judgment. Okay? Because if you look back at your other map... Well, there's other places they could have gone. Before they get to Moab, they could have gone into Benjamin's land or Gad's or Reuben's. Okay? So most likely they were all facing this famine. So they had to leave and go to another country altogether. Okay? And probably they would only go to a place like Moab in extreme desperation because Moab's beginnings are very, very questionable, okay? We can find them in Genesis 19, if you want to turn there. We see that this country, this group of people, actually came into being out of the ruins of Sodom and Gomorrah. So as you're turning to that, Again, Genesis 19, 31 through 38, just to catch up here. Sodom and Gomorrah had just been destroyed. Lot, of course, and his wife and his two daughters are saved by the angels that God sent to bring them out before the destruction. Okay? We know Lot's wife turned, so she was instantly killed. Lot and his two daughters escaped to a place called Zoar, another one of the cities that was supposed to be destroyed, but um, Lot 
talks the angels out of it in a weird little, um, a weird little story. <laughs> but they go to Zoar. They end up living in caves. Okay, so here's where we pick up the story. One day, the older daughter said to the younger, "Our father is old, and there is no man around to give us children, as the custom is all over the earth." Let's get our father to drink wine and then sleep with him to preserve our family line through our father. That night they got their father drunk and the older daughter went in and slept with him. He was not aware when she lay down or when she got up. The next day, the older daughter said to the younger, last night I slept with my father. Let's get him drunk with wine again tonight and you go in and sleep with him so we can preserve our family line through our father. So they gave their father wine to drink, and the younger daughter went in and slept with him. Again, he was not aware of when she lay down or when she got up. So both Lot's daughters became pregnant. The older daughter had a son, and she named him Moab. He is the father of the Moabites today. The younger daughter also had a son, and she named him Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Amorites today. Both nations, you all, become future enemies of Israel. Okay? And this, this is the beginning. Okay? Um, Oh, you all. When fear is a motivator in our decision-making. We make horrible choices. Horrible choices. We know these girls were young because they were engaged to be married. We know that from the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay, they had fiancés. So the, who, they could have been very young. This wasn't over for them. I'm sure Lot could have found them other husbands. Okay, out of desperation, fear, this is what they did. Think about this in your decision-making. Don't let, don't let fear be a main thing in your decision-making. Okay, Use this as the main thing in your decision-making. And you all, this is a cautionary tale. And you all, that's a lot of what this is. Okay? Um, where it says all scripture is God breathed and given for instruction, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. You, you can think of those four things, you all. Instruction, this teaches us what is good. Okay? Um, what was the second one? Instruction, correction, what, what is not good. Okay? It teaches us how to get things right and then training in righteousness, how to keep things right, okay? All scriptures, all of them, okay? So when you come to a scripture and you're like, what in the world? Why is this in here? Put, put it in line of one of those four things and see what you come up with, okay? Um, so, so here's the time frame for our story, Okay, we have the people during a horrible time, why they had to leave their country, okay, 
and where they went. So, verse 2. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephratites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. So, let's look into their names just a bit here. Because again, I don't think there's a name not worth looking into. A lot of people in here aren't named. So when they are, it's good to see what it means. Y'all, this is a really good use of about $8. It is called the Dictionary of Proper Names. Every proper name in the Bible. And it tells you what it means. Okay? Um, so the name Malon and Chilion were sick and pining respectfully, okay? So no big surprise that they die here in a little bit. Okay. <laughs> Naomi, the name Naomi means pleasant. But by the end of this chapter, you all, she changes her name. And... That is a very significant thing we're going to look at when we get there. Um, but here's the big one. I didn't put this in here for you because I want you to write it out. The name Elimelech means God is my king. Think about the time we're in. We just read Judges. In a time there was no king in Israel Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And here is a man whose name means God is my king. And he took his family and he got them out of there. And all of history changes because of it. And the thing I find so precious in Elimelech, you all, he's not in our story for very long. He's there, and then he's gone. Kind of like our own lives. Well, the Bible says it's like dust. We are here, and we are gone. No matter how long each of us live, it's not very long in the big span of time. But what we do with it can have everlasting significance. Do not forget that. Your choices, your choices can have everlasting significance. Um, so verse 3, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth, they lived there about 10 years. So in Deuteronomy 7.3, while we see that Jews are for, forbidden to marry Gentile women, okay? Yet they married these two girls. Um, and Israel, of course, has a very mixed relationship with the country of Moab. Sometimes they're kind of friendly and can work together. At other times, they're outright enemies. 
another connection you might want to look into this week that is interesting. Um, on your own, you can look at Numbers 22, um, chapters 22 through 25, and you can find a little story in here about once when the Moabite women were used in an attempt to bring down all of Israel. Okay? So you can look at that on your own if you don't know what it is. Um, so, what do we know about the Moabites? You all, this was an idolatrous culture. They worshipped the gods Chemosh and Molech. Okay? You, j- just to give you a hint here, you all, this word Molech is where we get our current word molestation. You can imagine the practices. Both of these gods required child sacrifice. Okay? So these girls, it is so funny. We don't get much of a history of her. In fact, it's almost like her life starts, okay, in in this story. But from what we do know about this place, this culture, their practices, there's no telling what they saw. There's no telling what they were brought up in. Might be why they wanted to leave with Naomi when she was going. Okay? Probably saw something. Probably wanted that. Probably didn't want to go back. One of them did. Okay? But one of them went on. Um, The name Orpa means fawn or gazelle. Don't know if that has any significance, but that's what it means. And Ruth can mean either friendship or desirable. Um, Verse 5. Both Malon and Chilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Widowhood was about the worst thing that could happen to you at this time. And you're only salvation if that happened was your sons and now she has neither okay so she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food so she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. So they're now starting on a very difficult journey on foot. This time, no men for protection. And Naomi says to them, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant me, grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voice and wept. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why would you go with me? So obviously, you all, we see there was a very special relationship here between mother-in-law and daughter-in-law. Okay? Um, that, that's not always a relationship that seems to be prized. Okay? It can be, um, well, all that to say. 
Here's a model. Here's a model of how it could be, how it should be. Okay? Naomi, obviously, she was looking out for the welfare of these girls because we can imply from this if they stayed, she's going on alone. This was going to be hard enough, the three of them. She's willing. She's like, I know you all can find other husbands. Okay, your life's not over. Stay. I'll, I'll go on. Okay. Um, she, she was looking out for them. And then we see Ruth um, wanting to stay. And then Naomi says something very strange, a little bit weird here. Okay. This is what she says. Have I yet sons in my womb that may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly Bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. A couple things here. First of all, remember what she says here. It is exceedingly bitter to me that the Lord has gone against me. Okay, that's going to come into play in our last verse here. Um, What we need to understand here is something in this culture called the law of the Leverite marriage. So let's turn to Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10. Several weeks, you all, at least three weeks, we're going to get a different law that pertains to our story. Okay? And it's going to help us understand why they're doing what they're doing. So Deuteronomy 25 Verses 5 through 10. This is the law of the Leverite marriage. I know when you see that word Leverite, it, it almost looks like Levi. You think of priest, like the tribe of Levi. But this actually um, is in Latin where we get this word, it's lavir, which means husband's brother. So it's brother-in-law, okay? This is what it says. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son, this is the very important part for our story, and the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother. That is the na- that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, Then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, 
my husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of the city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. Hmm. All right. (laughs) And she shall answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who has his sandal pulled off. (laughs) Okay. So here's the deal. Everything was based on their inheritance. An inheritance gets passed through sons. So if someone dies and they don't have a son, okay, then how does this get passed on? It was very important, okay, um, to have children, to have sons. There are a few cases, a few interesting cases. You can look these up. When somebody didn't have a son and they went to Moses, um, not Moses, well, they went, they got an allotment of land for themselves, even being women. Okay, so pretty cool. But in here, if someone died, it was someone in the families, it was the brother-in-law's responsibility to help them have a son. Whoops, sorry. To carry on the brother's name. Now, the brother-in-law had to be willing to do it. He wasn't forced to do it. Okay? but it was considered an honorable thing to do it. And it was considered a very shameful thing if you refused to do it. Okay. So all Naomi is saying is, I don't have any more sons. Nobody can do this for you. Even if I got a husband tonight, are you really going to wait? So so that's what all this means. And this law, you all, is going to become very important in our story again in a subsequent, subsequent chapter. So, they lifted up their voices and they wept again. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And Naomi said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said... And this is, hands down, one of the most quoted scriptures in probably all of the Bible. Okay? She says this. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death departs me from you. This is is the first glimpse that we really see of Ruth's character. 
okay? It shows, oh my goodness, self-sacrifice, <laughs> faithfulness, loyalty, commitment, and these things we're going to see played out the rest of the story. Um, most people think that later she, she is the model when Solomon writes Proverbs 31, the virtuous woman. They believe he was using Ruth as the example of that. Quite amazing. And this is where we get the first glimpse of the kind of girl she is. Um, so she's given up everything, you all. It might not have been a great place, but it's all she knew. Her family, I'm sure friends, her culture, going to a place totally unknown and foreign to her. Okay? Reminds me of when God called um, Abraham at the beginning. <laughs> he goes, I'm going to call you to a land you don't know. It's like, you go and then I'll show you. Ooh, that's, that's tough. That's tough. Um, so another thing to think about. What are we willing to give up to follow God before we know where he's taking us? Before we know what the outcome is going to be. Oh, you all, it'd be so easy to follow him if he said, this is what you do and this is what's going to happen. This is what I want you to do and then this is going to happen. He tells us what to do, okay? He tells us what to, that this is what the faith walk is, you all, in general. <laughs> he tells we do without knowing the outcome, okay? And this is exactly what she did here. So, verse 18, and when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. Don't you wish we had details of their trip? I often wonder, why do we get what we get? And why are certain things left out? This would be quite a trip. I would love to know about it. One day, we'll get to here. Um, and when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? You can almost hear them whispering. Is this Naomi? Um, who knows, you all? She left. At least 10 years have gone by, possibly more. Two very hard trips. She could have looked very different. Um, so at first, are they even recognizing her? And again, a possible illusion here is if this whole town was stirred, she might have been somebody well-known before she left, okay? It might have caused quite the stir when she came back, okay? So, and here she says, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. 
Something else I want you all to be thinking about. What do we call ourselves? Okay. Is it the same thing you think God would call us? Probably not. You all, Naomi was clueless here as to what all God had in store for her. And often we are as well. I don't think she'd be calling herself bitter if she knew what was about to happen. Okay? Now, we're going to kind of end with this. But I want you to see that when name changes occur in the Bible, it has profound significance. And this is because Hebrew is a totally different language than English. Hard for us to even get our minds around. We say, oh, the name Mickey means this. The name Sandy means this. Those are all made up because our letters, A, B, C, D, E, F, do not have meaning in and of themselves. Okay? That is not the case in Hebrew. In Hebrew, every symbol, okay, here's a chart for you. You can see the Hebrew symbol, and then you can see the Greek letter. Can you see that? A symbol, and then you see Aleph at the very top. Okay? So that's your Hebrew and your Greek. In Hebrew, every phoneme of sound has a meaning. Okay? The symbols in Hebrew were actually drawn to give meaning, and then the sound itself had a meaning, okay? So when we see that first symbol, which I have no idea how to pronounce in Hebrew, but in Greek it is aleph, okay, which later becomes our a, that means beginning or father. When you see the symbol there and the bet, which later becomes our b, This is how we get alphabet, okay? Later becomes our B. That symbol there and the sound means house. So when you put the ah and the bet together, the abba, you get father of the house. So when we're saying abba father, we're saying, oh, he's the father of the house. He's the father of it all. He's everything. Okay? Now, all, if you slid all these sounds together here, making up the word Bethlehem, all those sounds together mean house of bread because you still have that bet in there. Okay? In Genesis 17, we have the name change of both Abram and Sarai. Okay? Abram. And Sarai. Look how God changed their name. In each name, Abram, yes, to Abraham, he puts in the hey. Okay? Sarai to Sarah, he adds the hey, the H. You all, that H, or what becomes our H, the hey, is breath wind, spirit. Look what he's doing. 
He's saying, oh, you're not Abram. You have my spirit. I'm putting my spirit in you, my breath in you. You are mine. Same with Sarah. Oh, you all, that's amazing. Um, Genesis 32, this is where we have Jacob's name, okay? Remember Jacob, the usurper, the grabber of the heel, which is what his name means, okay? After he wrestles with God, his name gets changed, and it becomes Israel, okay? Which means he that striveth with God, he who perseveres. Okay, you all. Jacob's name becomes Israel. Israel becomes the name of the nation. Is there ever in history a nation that has persevered more than Israel? Ever a nation that has had more attempts to wipe them off the map, to destroy them, and they are still a nation. I think the only one ever that got totally dispersed from their land, yet they keep their national identity because God told them they're coming back. And they did, 1948. And Jews all over the world still knew who they were. You all, I can't tell you my ancestors past my grandmother. This was thousands of years. They persevered in the promise that God had given them. And they are back in their land. Okay? And they, it's in their name. <laughs> This character is in their name. Um, one thing you can do. Did I put this on your notes? Revelation. Okay. Oh, down at the bottom. Okay. Um, something you can look at on your own. This is Jesus in his letter to the church of Sardis. Okay. Seven letters to the seven churches. Every letter ends with a promise to the overcomer, saying, you overcome this, and this is what you get. Read that on your own and see a pretty special promise the overcomer gets concerning a name. It's pretty awesome. Something to look forward to. Um, But back to Naomi, you all. Naomi changed her own name. Her given name, Pleasant, she gave herself a name that meant bitter. Um, You all, she does not see God's redemptive plan at the moment, okay? And again, last thing for you to think about throughout the week here. We need to be careful how we talk during trials. And we need to be careful how we talk about God in our trials. Because we don't know the end yet. If you're in the trial, it's not over. You have to be very careful. 
Okay. Um, so last verse. So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. We're actually going to start with that verse next week because there's a couple things we got to dig into there that we can't get into tonight. So, 